Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And it is time for the tech news for Tuesday, May 18th, 2021. Over the weekend, China celebrated the successful landing of a rover on the surface of Mars. That means that, as of now, China and the United States are the only two nations to have landed rovers successfully on the planet. Other countries have sent missions to Mars, but these are the only two countries that have landed rovers that have landed uh, safely. The rover arrived housed in a lander, which used a parachute and retro rockets to slow its descent through the Martian atmosphere before touching down on Martian soil. So this is a different approach from what NASA was using with the Perseverance rover and the Curiosity rover before that, both of which used a sky crane technique in which the descent stage of the spacecraft used rockets to kind of hover over a landing zone and then lower the rovers down to the surface on cables. The Chinese lander touched down at around 7.18 p.m. Eastern Time on Friday, but it was another hour before China scientists could confirm a successful touchdown. This really illustrates just you know how hard it is to get a successful landing on Mars. The delay between when something happens and when we can know about it is significant. Even if everything is working properly, it's significant. That's partly because the distance between Earth and Mars is great enough that it actually takes light or you know radio communications several minutes to make the journey from one point to the other. The rover, named Zhurong, after a Chinese got a fire, and I apologize for my pronunciation, I tried looking it up, but the source I could find had middling responses from people as to whether or not it was accurate. So my apologies for, for butchering that. Anyway, Zhurong will rove across Mars for about three months, if all goes well, possibly beyond that if things go really well. NASA's had a history of missions lasting well beyond their projected lifespan. The rover will use various instruments to look for evidence of the past existence of life on Mars. Uh, in other Chinese space program news, back in April, China launched a rocket carrying a module for China's space station. Uh, the country plans to assemble that station and have it ready for occupation by the end of next year. The rocket that carried that module up unfortunately had an uncontrolled return to Earth, which caused a lot of concern along the various paths of potential descent before it ultimately plummeted into the ocean. But for a while, people along those pathways were a little worried that perhaps a Chinese rocket might just fall and, and collide with the Earth and, and cause massive damage. So while China has a big win with the landing on Mars, the country also has faced some criticism because of that rocket issue. You might remember a story from last week about how Elon Musk, who has been a big supporter of cryptocurrencies, helped send Bitcoin values into a downward spiral after announcing that Tesla, the company you know that makes electric vehicles, would no longer accept the cryptocurrency Bitcoin as payment. Now, the reasoning behind that decision, according to Musk, was because of the environmental impact of Bitcoin mining. Now, I've covered this in the past, but that is definitely an issue. Bitcoin mining requires an enormous amount of electricity to run the powerful computers 
that rush to solve the guessing game that ultimately determines which computer gets the next batch of bitcoins. Now, some of those computers are getting electricity from renewable energy sources like wind power, which is, you know, good, except it is taking up electricity that could potentially be going to other places. Uh, however, some Bitcoin mining operations are sucking down juice from power plants that rely on fossil fuels. So these are helping to contribute toward climate change and carbon emissions. For a company that sells electric vehicles, which depend partly upon at least marketing that, you know, electric vehicles are an environmentally cleaner alternative to gasoline or diesel powered combustion engines, you know, it wasn't a good look. Hard to sell an electric vehicle as being environmentally friendly if you're also accepting a cryptocurrency that is perceived as being environmentally unfriendly. Musk said at the time that Tesla, the company, had no plans to divest itself of its own Bitcoin investment. It had a you know substantial amount of Bitcoin. But even so, the announcement meant that Bitcoin took a hit in value after already having a dip earlier in the year. Then over the weekend, Musk had a Twitter exchange that some people thought implied that Tesla had divested itself of its Bitcoin, and then the cryptocurrency took another hit. So at the height of its value this year, a single Bitcoin was valued at around 65000 bucks. As I write this, the value is closer to $43,000. Now don't get me wrong, 43000 bucks is a lot of money, and if you got in on the Bitcoin train at the very beginning, you're still looking at a pretty amazing return on your investment, just less than what it was a couple of weeks ago. But this does mean that Bitcoin's value has dropped more than $20,000 per Bitcoin in the span of a few weeks, and that kind of volatility shows that Bitcoin can be a very dangerous investment. It's definitely not a good currency as it stands right now. Like, you wouldn't really be able to use this to make purchases in any effective way. It also indicates that Elon Musk has way too much influence when, even if he didn't mean to, his tweets can send a commodity's value into a sharp decline. On Monday, Musk clarified that the company Tesla had not divested itself of Bitcoin, but as I record this, the currency hasn't seen much of a recovery. So what is going on here? Well, if I were to give an armchair analysis, and let me start this by saying I am by no means an expert in these matters, I would say that um, what's probably happening is you've got a sizable group of Bitcoin investors who probably hold a relatively small percentage of Bitcoin collectively. We're not talking about the whales who own enormous amounts of Bitcoin. But they see Musk tweet something and they perceive the possibility of Bitcoin's value dropping, so they rush off to sell off their Bitcoin assets to, you know, minimize the amount of loss they might experience, and that in turn actually causes the dip to go lower. The dip becomes something of a self-fulfilling prophecy, because so much of Bitcoin's value is based in perception and speculation. You could argue that the real people at fault here are those investors who panicked in response to something that Musk tweeted, and not Musk himself, but however you assign the responsibility, the outcome is pretty much the same. Now, will Bitcoin recover? Probably. I'm guessing it will at some point. But I would be foolish to predict how low the value will go when it does turn around. 
Some people think we're still in a bull market, which means that we'll see the value go up. Others think we have entered a bear market and that the value is going to continue to go down. There doesn't seem to be any sort of agreement on that, and far be it from me to be able to make any kind of pronouncement. Sentiment could change quickly enough to make any guess I could hazard a total whiff. Anyway, this is a continuation of my series that I'm calling Jonathan is Old and He Thinks Cryptocurrencies Are Inherently Unstable Investments, and more importantly, they're very lousy currencies. Plus, the proof-of-work style cryptocurrencies are just incredibly wasteful. Proof of stake has its own problems. Again, I'm going to have to do a full episode about these in the future. In mergers and acquisitions news, it looks like AT&T is planning to spin off WarnerMedia, which will then merge with Discovery Communications. Now, I find this story particularly interesting since once upon a time, I worked for Discovery Communications. How Stuff Works, the company that I started at when I started Tech Stuff, uh, that was part of a private company called the Convex Group way back in the day. So this was 2007 was when I joined How Stuff Works. Discovery acquired Convex and thus How Stuff Works the following year in 2008. A few years after that, Discovery sold off How Stuff Works to a different company called Blue Cora. Then Blue Cora sold us to another company, which took on the name System One. System One spun off the podcast arm of How Stuff Works as a separate podcast media company, which was then acquired by iHeartMedia. So I've been in the same career path this entire time, the same, you know, like job path. However, the names at the top of the org charts kept changing. But that wild ride is nothing compared to the various properties that are under Warner Media. That includes HBO, Cinemax, Warner Brothers, and much, much more. AT&T appears to be moving away from the vertical strategy in which a single company serves as the delivery system, that is, the, a telecommunications-style company, uh, and content generation, or, you know, like a studio. This is what we see with other companies, though. I mean, like NBC Universal is owned by Comcast, and that's like a unified approach. So it is interesting to see AT&T split off from that. The announcement came as a surprise not just to folks like myself, but apparently it also surprised Warner Media CEO Jason Kilar. The Verge reports that Kilar is negotiating his departure from Warner Media. He became CEO of the company in April of last year, so he's served as leader for just over a year now. And according to sources who spoke with the New York Times, he was kept in the dark about the decision to merge with Discovery. The announcement makes it sound as though Discovery CEO David Zaslov is going to oversee this new merged entity, which would mean that, you know, Kilar's role would largely have become redundant anyway. Most estimations say the merger will take more than a year to complete, so we're looking at 2022 before this all settles in. Uh, what this means for the media landscape in general is a big open question. It'll be interesting to see how things shift around. Uh, I know that Discovery has got to be really interested in this. They were looking for digital solutions when they purchased How Stuff Works. I mean, that was a big reason why they, they purchased the company back in the day. And I get the feeling that they never quite nailed it. So I'm wondering if this is another approach to not just adding an enormous amount of of you know, capability to the company because Warner Media is huge, but also get that digital delivery system tightly integrated into Discovery's practices. 
Moving on. So one of the stories that's been developing in tech is that Bill and Melinda Gates are divorcing and that this process has been going on for a while now that, you know, at least since 2019. And I wasn't initially going to report on any of this because while Bill Gates is an important person in tech, you know, he was the co-founder of Microsoft and served as the CEO for many years and then was chairman of the board for years more and still on the board of directors up until 2020. But I figured the personal struggles of a married couple making the decision to end their marriage wasn't something I should cover in a tech podcast. But the plot has considerably thickened as more details have emerged during this process. For one, Bill Gates apparently pursued a romantic relationship with a Microsoft employee back in 2000. And just in case you're curious, Bill and Melinda Gates married in 1994. Beyond the extramarital affair aspect of this is the huge issue of a man who had been serving as CEO until January 2000 and who remained on as chairman of the board of directors for Microsoft while simultaneously pursuing a relationship with a Microsoft employee. Even if Bill Gates had been single, that would have been an enormous problem. The board of directors initiated a probe after receiving a letter from an employee who stated that Gates had sought an intimate relationship with her in 2000 and that the relationship that resulted had lasted several years. Bill Gates resigned from the board of directors in 2020 before that investigation was concluded. It was also only three months after he had been re-elected to the board of directors. Now, I'm not here to speculate on things, but according to various sources, at least six current or former Microsoft employees have said that his actions in the workplace made them uncomfortable. And that language is open to a lot of interpretation. But again, I'm not going to you know, speculate as to what that might actually mean. I feel like that's a disservice to all parties uh, involved. Another element to this sordid proceeding is that Bill Gates had met with Jeffrey Epstein at least as early as 2011 and as late as 2013. Uh, 2011 was three years after Epstein had already been found or had pled guilty to charges for soliciting an underage girl, which is truly horrifying. Uh, and of course, Epstein would later be linked to sex trafficking operations and uh, trafficking of underage girls. And Gates's meetings with Epstein reportedly contributed to Melinda Gates's decision to seek a divorce from, from Bill. The whole thing paints a very ugly picture that is still unfolding as I record this, and it appears to have had large consequences regarding Gates's association with Microsoft. Now, I say appears because Bill Gates's representatives have issued numerous denials regarding the various speculations and allegations linking Bill Gates to Epstein, as well as allegations that Gates created an uncomfortable atmosphere for Microsoft employees. So this story, I'm sure, will continue. It doesn't look good, um, and uh, I'm certainly more inclined to believe the accusers but at the same time, you know, obviously you want to try and maintain objectivity as best as possible. Um, so yeah, complicated issue and a terrible, terrible story. We have a couple of Apple stories to cover today as well. One is that Apple and Amazon Music have both announced services that would allow subscribers to their music services to listen to lossless audio for no extra cost. So that means 
we should quickly go over what lossless even means. When it comes to digital audio, there are a few ways to go about encoding data. Some encoding formats are lossy formats. This helps keep file sizes down. Essentially, you are losing some of the data associated with that sound file. Uh, raw sound files get pretty big, which, you know, until recently meant that streaming them was a non-starter, just because most people didn't have the broadband throughput that you would need to be able to do that effectively. They were also so large that they would take up a, a ton of storage space if you were trying to save them to a device or something. So there are sound formats that conserve file size by getting rid of some of that data in an effort to compress the file sizes. These are lossy formats. And the process means that depending on what hardware you're using to listen to the music, you might be able to tell the difference between lossy versions and the lossless version. The goal of lossy versions is to only eliminate data that, in theory at least, doesn't affect the listening experience of the audio file. In practice, it can affect it. So generally speaking, lossless just means you get a better quality of audio, but you do have to have the right kind of equipment to listen to it, or else it won't pick up on that. Well, Apple Music subscribers will be able to listen to more than 75 million songs in lossless audio, and Amazon Music, as I mentioned, is doing something similar. Apple also announced spatial audio support, which sounds a lot to me like binaural or 3D audio. Uh, essentially, it's a way for producers to create sound mixes that make it sound as if audio is coming at you from specific directions around you, assuming, again, that you're listening on appropriate hardware. So let's talk about that hardware thing. Apple says that if subscribers want to listen to the top tier of lossless audio, so the best of the best, you would need to have a USB digital to analog converter to thus convert the signal properly before feeding that to a pair of wired headphones. Now, such a converter would be an external gadget that you would have to plug into whatever device you're using to access Apple Music, but this also means that Apple's own AirPods, uh, AirPods Max, and AirPods Pro gadgets won't support this level of lossless audio playback, at least not wirelessly. These devices typically pair with an iPhone over Bluetooth AAC codec that does not support this lossless audio format. So you can technically listen to lossless audio on an iPhone, but you will need to connect the iPhone to some sort of external USB digital-to-analog converter and then use a different pair of wired headphones to be able to experience it. That being said, 9to5Mac reports that AirPods Max will support high-resolution lossless audio if you're using them as wired headphones, not wireless ones. That takes a little wind out of the sails of this announcement, but on the flip side, both Apple and Amazon are putting a lot of pressure on Spotify, which is also beginning to offer lossless audio, but Spotify is doing it at a premium subscription, so you have to actually pay extra to get that access. Apple and Amazon using lossless audio as a free upgrade is a kind of a big kick in the teeth to Spotify. Now, I'm just sitting off to the side over here. I'm just eating my popcorn and watching this whole, you know, shake it loose. Also related to Apple, Parlay, or Parler if you prefer, is once again available on the Apple App Store. Parler, for those who do not know, is a social media platform that positions itself as a champion of free speech. 
But funding for the service, leadership for the service, all these things that are, are key to the service being in operation come from sources that are either the right-wing political <laughs> appointees or, or politicians, or they're coming from people who have funded right-wing political efforts. And Parler's user base skewed pretty hard toward the right wing of the political spectrum and certainly was dipping pretty hard into extremism. The platform saw itself ousted from Google and Apple app stores, as well as from Amazon Web Services uh, and their hosting system after the January 6th uh, assault on the U.S. Capitol and the company repeatedly failed to moderate content that included hate speech and calls for violence. Mark Meckler, who was an interim CEO who stepped in to replace a former CEO who got fired from Parler, is now leaving the company to be replaced by George Farmer, who since March has been the chief operating officer for the company, and previously who was a candidate for the Brexit party over in the UK. To get back into the App Store, Parler had to update its app and content moderation policies. And it looks like there will effectively be a different flavor of Parler on iOS. iOS users will see a more pared-down version of the content of the app, material that would violate the terms that Parler has had to agree to in order to come back to Apple's App Store. All that content has to be hidden away from iOS users. Those who are on the web-based version or who have side-loaded the Android app on their devices would see everything, not just the stuff that iOS would allow. Uh, side-loading is the process of adding an app outside of an authorized app store. Apple does not allow for this. You cannot side-load apps on, a, on an out-of-the-box Apple device without altering it. Uh, Google, however, does allow for side-loading apps. It advises against it, but says if you want to, you can load apps that we will not carry in our app store, uh, but we kind of disavow ourselves of what might happen to you if you do it. So while Parler is still not in the Google Play Store officially, Android users can side-load it onto their devices. Parler had a spike of popularity in the fall of 2020, but it was kind of in decline even before it started getting banned from app stores and hosting services. I'm not sure what its numbers look like now, but from what I understand, uh, it's you know uh, not nearly as popular as it was leading into the election stuff of 2020. And that's it for the tech news for Tuesday, May 18th, 2021. We'll be back later this week with more news updates as well as other episodes of Tech Stuff. If you have suggestions for topics I should cover on Tech Stuff, reach out to me. Let me know what those are. The best way to do that is on Twitter. Our handle is TechStuffHSW, and I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.